Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. Welcome to the, the weekly macro policy call. I'd like to thank Chris Zerwinski and Bart Oosterveld, who takes the lead in, in putting our macro view together every week. They are here on the phone. Also on the call is our LATAM analyst, Brian Dean. And with that, I'd like to begin today's call. First question, uh, Chris, how would you assess the, the continual yin and yang pull and, and retreat of U.S.-China relations under President Trump? Comments by Navarro out, further sanctioning of Chinese companies. But nevertheless, the phase one deal seems intact. I would say there's more compliments on the phase one trade deal than there are negatives on the other side. How do you assess that? Hey, thanks, David. Yeah, I very much agree with that, that there seem to be more positives. There's a lot of news. There always is. And there's a lot of noise surrounding the relationship. That's what happens when you've got the two largest economies going head to head in in a variety of different ways, right? But I think that that what we can learn from last week's comment, earlier this week, I should say, from Navarro's comments and then his quick retracement, literally 30 minutes later, he's making comments to the Wall Street Journal after saying that the U.S.-China phase one deal is over. He quickly retraced that back and then Trump himself tweeted that the deal is fully intact. I think that it very much solidifies and, and backs up our assertion that the phase one trade deal for now is is safe. It, it's something that's very politicized, but I, I think that the impact of Navarro's comments in the futures market was relatively subdued and relatively quick. And then the fact that Trump so quickly jumped in to, to right the ship shows how important it is to him. And, and I would say that Supporting evidence on that is just the week before, Secretary Pompeo met with a group of Chinese diplomats in Hawaii to discuss the bilateral relationship. And after that, this same group of officials pledged to accelerate agriculture purchases and recommitted to the phase one deal, which was notable in and of itself. Holding a personal meeting with a China hawk, who is Pompeo, I think is notable and, and symbolic. And then finally, on top of that, we had Lighthizer, USTR, testifying before Congress last week, and he also defended the phase one deal. So there's a lot of noise, but I continue to think that the phase one deal is safe. And David, this is something that you've said. There are a lot of things that are now issues, right? We're talking about a lot of the relief efforts in Congress, and these are things that this administration is focusing on deeply right now. But we think that the escalation, if there is one, and the increased rhetoric could come closer to the election, so maybe in, in September. you agree with that still, David? No, no look, China is going to be a hard-fought issue of this campaign. There's no doubt about it. Democrats are going to work. And the first ad's out. I encourage people to go to YouTube and, and, and catch the first Biden anti-Trump ad. And they were, they were going to seek to define Donald Trump as naive on China, let the virus into the U.S. in his pursuit of trade deals. And it's all laid out there. And, and Trump will go back with the usual Beijing-Biden story. So yes, the bilateral relationship, we believe, it will get much more stress during the height of the campaign period, which will be September and October. David, it's funny, too, with, with that ad, you know, it's something that you said before. You, you've been saying that basically they're gonna, the Democrats are going to portray Trump as being naive with Xi in his personal relationship as well, and that leading to some of this bad decision-making. And the first image in that Democratic ad is Trump and Xi together, and then they really hit the phase one agreement and some of the U.S. sectors that have been hit very hardly through some of these trade conflicts. So it's definitely um, right out of what you would expect in terms of the Democratic attack uh, 
narrative on, on Trump with China. But outside of that, you know, we, we've actually been seeing a lot more on the European trade fronts this last week, week and a half as well. A number of things have happened. I think that the first thing that really strikes me is that the United States is stepping back from the OECD digital tax negotiations. And this is something that wasn't off our radar in terms of market participants, but it was something that kind of was on the back burner. And nobody expected once the U.S. joined these talks and said that they're committed to finding a multilateral solution, nobody was really sitting there, you know, holding their breath for a renewed conflict before the presidential election. And now it seems like after Secretary Mnuchin announced that the United States will not participate, at least for some time in those negotiations, it seems like that might be back on the table. Bart, what do you make of the fact that both France and Germany have said that they're going to hold off on collecting tax until after 2020? So they have seen decided to move forward cautiously with Trump before the election. Some of the rest of Europe has indicated that they will continue to move forward prior to the election. Do you see some of these scenarios being bifurcated in, in the European decision makers' minds as to will Trump be in office after 2020 or before? Is, is that kind of what's influencing their decision making here? Yeah, I think that's a critical point, Chris, and I think you're absolutely right that they're, they're trying to signal that they will negotiate one way if Trump gets reelected and another way if Biden is in the White House. So that's one consideration. I think the other, frankly, is that they don't really have time in Europe right now for a major conflict on trade matters or digital tax matters with the U.S. They're fully consumed with Brexit and negotiating the, the details of the economic recovery package. You mentioned Brexit, and I want to get back to that in a second. But I also am interested in getting your viewpoint on what we're hearing out of the media. And we've seen the Irish government themselves push Phil Hogan, who's currently the European Commissioner for Trade. He himself is pushing for the Director General position with their support of the World Trade Organization, the WTO. There are a number of different hats in the ring right now for the position. And it's not necessarily clear that Phil Hogan has a great shot of getting this position. Can you run us through who you think actually is in a good position to get that? Yeah, so they're jockeying for that position because Acevedo resigned quite unexpectedly. It's hard to understand why the EU would be pushing Hogan or why Hogan would think of himself as a, as a good candidate. The leading candidate by all accounts is Dr. Okonyo Iweala, the former finance minister of Nigeria, who is an advisor to managing director of the IMF currently, among other positions. She has broad support. By all accounts, she's the leading candidate. Why uh, Hogan and his circle would be spending time trying to pursue that position is a bit puzzling to me. It's just interesting considering that we're seeing a relative flare-up in U.S.-EU tension in terms of trade right now, and it, it does seem to divert some of his focus away from that and also decrease a little bit of perhaps his leverage in the negotiations with the United States because of this. I look at the news this week where the U.S. is in the process of reviewing its WTO tariff in relation to the Airbus case. That's ongoing. Those tariffs have been in place. What made the news, though, and, and I think that it's perhaps been mischaracterized, is that it almost, to some viewers, looks like this is a new tariff conflict with that, that can put even more stress on the relationship. I don't deny that this can put more stress on the relationship, but these tariffs are, are sanctioned by the WTO, and they're actually required under U.S. law. It's what we call caraselling, which is basically when they transition tariffs uh, every six months in order to spread it across industries to keep the economy off balance. 
a public comment period ends at the end of July. So we got about a month until we see where they go with that. But it is something that could cause friction. And with Phil Hogan a little bit distracted, perhaps he doesn't seem to be in the best position to negotiate a settlement here, which is something that USTR Lighthizer has been very adamant is the goal of this. So that's something that we're definitely going to be watching. Again, Europe is going to be granted its own opportunity to put tariffs on U.S. products after the WTO rules on Boeing. That should be happening in the next two months. And so once that happens, both sides will have tariffs on each other's products. And then probably the negotiated settlement will actually begin to pick up steam. So that, those are a couple of the things we're looking at on the European trade front. I, I think it took up a little bit more oxygen this week than it has recently, obviously, Europe has been distracted with a number of things. Bart, maybe you could update us on. We've got this extra summit that's now scheduled for the 17th and 18th of July in person. What are the European countries hoping to get out of that? Thank you, Chris. Yeah, uh, just one final comment on the Airbus and Boeing cases. This is ripe for a negotiated settlement, obviously, as, as you say. And in, in easier diplomatic times, it probably would have already been done. And given the existing circumstances, these are cases about subsidies. To continue a disagreement about two big airplane makers that will continue to need subsidies because of the COVID crisis is, is entirely silly. I agree with you that there wasn't much news this week, except there, the release of new lists of targeted industries so that some industry associations got upset. It's kind of interesting if people think we still have time for this kind of stuff. Okay, on the summit, we had predicted that one or two additional summits would be scheduled, and that has now happened, the initial one for 17th and 18th of July. The disagreements about the economic recovery package, I think, are well documented. So everything from, you know, which taxes get levied at the EU level, how does the money get allocated to the different member countries, and what's the balance between loans and grants. I think on the, the balance of loans and grants and the size of the overall effort is $750 billion. There's consensus near. Macron visited the Netherlands on Tuesday to iron out with the Dutch Prime Minister some details on that. I think where they'll spend a lot of time mid-July is identifying where this money gets spent, which countries get it. It's problematic to some that Poland, which was not heavily affected by the virus, is slated to be the second largest recipient of these monies. And a fairly ambitious plan to finance completely the energy transition with, with these funds, which distracts from immediate fiscal needs of, for example, Italy and Spain have. So it's a nice lofty goal to have green energy in, in Europe and zero emissions by 2050. But Italy urgently needs a disbursement of funds to, to protect its sovereign balance sheet. So I think that's the outline of the discussion. I, it's 50-50 whether they come to a conclusion in mid-July. It's probably an extra summit that, that will be needed. That's one silo of discussion in Europe, obviously the second, and, and you touched on it earlier, are the ongoing Brexit negotiations. I understand that there's a summit they're hoping to actually make progress in October. That's far from now. What type of noise can we expect between now and then, and what have we learned this week? There's a lot of things happening kind of a little under the radar that are significant, including the Bank of England yesterday indicating to the UK domicile bank that they didn't have to comply with certain aspects of European financial regulation. It sets up a separate regime. There's similar noises out of the UK Treasury about data privacy and data protection. Senior policymakers wondering out loud whether they should set up a separate regime for the GDPR in Europe. So despite optimistic noises and the desire by both the EU and the UK, the stated desire to make a lot 
lot of progress. Things are mostly stuck, with the exception of the fisheries issue, which gets a lot of press, where they are not too far from some agreement that will basically keep the status quo under a different name. On the big issues, so regulatory equivalence in financial regulation, which is really where the rubber hits the road if London is going to retain its position as, as financial markets capital of Europe, the, the files are stuck. That would suggest in the absence of some major breakthrough soon, WTO-based trade between EU and the UK, a fairly disruptive scenario for the UK economy and for London as a financial services center. So the odds of that are significantly increasing as, as the weeks go by. Yeah, yeah, there may be serious talks happening soon, but in the absence of a major effort by Johnson and von der Leyen, personally, it's hard to see at the working level a good progress. Yeah, and so Barnier's comments yesterday that there's progress and the deal is within reach is all part of the posturing, and sure, there might be little bits of optimism, but at the end of the day, the, the progress on the real issues just has not been there yet. Now, this is all happening, obviously, barred in the backdrop of what we're seeing in the United States, and, and globally, the economic recoveries are taking longer than previously expected. We're seeing a resurgence of cases in the United States, which could limit economic activity here. Yesterday, the IMF put out their updated growth expectations, maybe run us through just a quick couple observations as to what was interesting in those findings. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Chris. So the IMF had said repeatedly over the past month or so that they were going to update their economic forecast and that it was going to look worse. So broadly, that's what happened. What still continues to surprise, they lowered the forecast for a number of big economies. So France is now supposed to contract 12.5% this year, Spain 12.8%, Brazil 9.1%. What I find more surprising than those downward revisions, which were more or less expected and priced in, is a really sharp bounce back in growth in 2021. So you take this as an exogenous shock, which it is, and it has severe effects this year. But then in these forecasts, there's a V-shaped recovery for many economies. So France is then supposed to grow 7% next year. Italy is supposed to grow 6% next year. I don't think Italy has grown its economy by 6% in, in the last 40 or 50 years. I continue to be surprised by that. We have a globally integrated economy. So the supply chains are as good as the most affected economy. The scenario I have in mind is more disruptive and more choppy. Can you run us through the heat map then, Bart? You know, what are some of the things that we've seen this week? Yeah, we compare the risks of a severe fiscal shock and debt shock for 75 frontier and emerging markets. We use a combination of, of health and public finance indicators. Just sticking to the case numbers initially here, what had been concerning the past few weeks is that every country with a population of over 100 million people, the case numbers were growing rapidly. Globally, that growth rate is coming down. So the, the global two-week growth rate in cases is about 28%, and that's unchanged from last week. But it's coming down in Brazil. It's still very high. It's a 50 percent increase, but down from 71%, came down in India and Bangladesh and Ethiopia and Pakistan. So all those countries, you know, major population centers, case numbers are, are dropping. Thanks, Bart. Ryan, I, I want to bring you in then. We touched on the IMS growth forecast, and in Mexico is one of those countries that's going to be hit even harder than they were previously expecting. I think that the government's expectations for growth are obviously more optimistic than uh, than the IMS. That seems to be true for, for many countries around the globe. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Right. Thank you. Yeah, Latin America was hit very hard on the IMF update, and uh, Mexico is, of course, no exception. According to the IMF, they're anticipating a contraction of 10.5%, which is a negative revision. Mexico's official figures call for a best-case scenario of a contraction of 4.6%, worst-case scenario at 8.8%. And as an example, City Bonamex has a, uh, a range of, of a contraction of 6.5% to 10.5%. Now, I will say how However, that the IMF is not factoring in the activation of the USMCA anticipated next week, toward the end of next week. But yes, the uh, IMF and others are looking at uh, a policy trajectory on Amos case that is governly adhering to austerity and unwillingness to engage in debt finance uh, fiscal response to the coronavirus. Yeah, I was going to say, because you touched on the USMCA, that there are going to be a couple of other drivers that are going to be very important. So it's my understanding, Brian, from, you know, discussions with you that there's going to be an extraordinary session of Mexico's Congress coming up. Well, first, let me say that on the USMCA-related resolutions that are coming up in the extraordinary session next week, uh, they are all four are expected to pass. They all relate to very specific areas, and uh, they are deemed to be non-controversial. They've been held, held up because of the lack of the ability to convene Congress because of the coronavirus. Aside from the USMCA provisions, they're going to be uh, discussing a, a resolution to grant some emergency budgetary authority to the president that's very controversial controversial, though expected to pass. It essentially places 10% of Mexico's annual budget under the direct discretion of the president for use in emergency situations under a very ill-defined uh, definition of emergency. That's going to be cause for some debate. There's also a resolution coming up that is going to enable AMLO to extract money from government trust accounts and dedicated accounts throughout government, of which there are literally hundreds and the opposition in Congress is expected to oppose those. So given the majorities of AMLO's party, the Morena, in both houses, expected to pass nonetheless. Outside of the USMCA, we, we, we haven't seen Mexico put forward a tremendous you know, fiscal response to this crisis. You continue to think that AMLO is not going to move on this, considering his adversity to uh, you know, picking up more debt. You know, I don't see any uh, indication on Amlo's part that he's going to proceed along those lines. He remains committed to his austerity plan. He doesn't intend on issuing debt. He contracted a $1 billion loan from the World Bank at the end of May that he claims is for purposes unrelated to coronavirus. However, according to the World Bank, it's directly related to the coronavirus. Amlo is very stubborn. I think that the best hope to see any sort of a reversal on those policies or a more favorable policy outlook for Mexico lies in continued pressure and a loss of consensus in support of AMLO, which is something that we're starting to see based on polling data and the mobilization of the business community along with the opposition parties, particularly with an eye toward 2021 legislative elections. If you're looking for uh, AMLO to recalibrate his policy outlook on, on these issues at any point in the foreseeable future, I think the chance is very low. However, there's going to be increasing pressure on him to do so for political reasons and declining supports from critical sectors in Mexico. I think that's a very good point, and that's something that we will obviously be, be closely monitoring. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. 
If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.